Hi, this is Margot Escott, and welcome to Improv Interviews. Jimmy Corain is an internationally known improv teacher, writer, performer, and dad. It's exciting to hear Jimmy talk about his experiences in improv and the teachers that he learned from who are part of improv history today. Jimmy has done 233 podcasts and blogs, and he is extremely honest. He's also extremely vulnerable and talks about some of the things that helped him and hindered him in his growth as an improviser and teacher. I hope you'll go to his blog and his podcast to learn more about Jimmy Corain, and I know you'll enjoy this podcast. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Margot. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, We've got a new nanny here for Betsy, so we're kind of uh, doing a little transition. Uh, so uh, it's a little, just a little chaotic. Well, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it was the same, it'd be very boring. So tell me a little bit about your daughter and how she's changed your life. Oh, my God. She has changed my life in so many ways. I think one of the biggest things, you know, um, is, uh, you know, getting in touch with a lot of feelings uh, that I that I you know had a hard have had a hard time in my life accessing, and one of those is is feeling joy. And actually, you know, when we first had Betsy, uh, the first couple months is, was really really hard. And, and and I think both my wife and I wanted to put her on Craigslist. Um, and then after a while, I started to really enjoy having her. And even though I still enjoyed having her, I would tell people like, oh, what's it like? You know, how's everything with Betsy? And I'd say, oh, it's really hard. Oh, poor me and stuff like that. And one day I was down playing with Betsy and my wife came down and she said, she kind of caught me and she's like, see, you really like her. You're having so much fun. And she was actually, she was, she was, she was, she was absolutely right. So it's got me in touch with joy. And in terms of material, the material is just endless when you have a, a newborn. And also, I think the other thing is um, time. You, you kind of reflect on, you know, I, I look back, you know, of my 20s and 30s and even a couple of years ago. And God, I wasted so much time because when you have a kid, time becomes so precious. And And what about play? You know, in improv, we talk about play, but... This is her language right now is play. Yes, it is. And I actually wrote a blog. It was, uh, I think it was, uh, it was last week. Um, I had experienced um, my wife uh, when I would play with Betsy, Lauren, she would be like, oh, you know, give her that block or, you know, don't swing her that hard on the swing. And for me as an improv teacher, you know, certainly my ego was like, Hey, Lauren, you know, I, I teach this stuff. You don't have to tell me how to play. And what I got from that is, you know, like when we control play, you know, it really, and, and control play can happen in so many different ways as an improviser. And that is, you know, telling somebody what to do or playing the same angry character over and over again. Um, and, what I what I got to see as I was playing with my daughter and my my you know I experienced my wife Lauren trying to control me was when we try to do that and I'm guilty of it I mean I'm guilty of it as an improviser and as a person when we do that we ruin the play and I think one of the biggest things that I struggle with and I see my students struggle with in terms of play is 
there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And once improvisers get a little um, training behind them and they start to understand the rules, in a way it frees you up, but in another way it also limits you. I totally understand that, and I see a big difference between directing and coaching. There's a huge difference there. So, um, yes, there there is there is a there's a difference between directing. There's a difference between coaching, and there's a difference between teaching. So you do it all. You're actually the Renaissance man here, Jimmy. You're an actor, a writer, a teacher. You're a performer. What other things do you call yourself besides Jimmy? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm having a hard time. I'd like to add dad to that, you know, actor, writer, performer, teacher, dad. And I'm really struggling with uh, seeing myself as a dad. So um, that's something that, God willing, I am working on in therapy. Um, a best-selling author would be great. Uh, uh, any award-winning uh, talk show host would be great. Uh, New York Times bestseller uh, would be great. Uh, you know, millionaire would be great. All of those things would be great. Well, you've taught you your your blogs and your podcast are sometimes brutally honest about yourself and your feelings and your thoughts about fame. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? How you used to think about fame and jealousy. Um, Oh, fame and jealousy, sure. Um, well, fame has always been my higher power. I mean, I, I, I've always felt like it, if only I get famous, if only I make enough money uh, w- along with the fame, that that my life will be will be will be fine. And um, I'm not that I'm at a famous level, but I'm starting to realize, you know, that 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 might not be. Um, that not, might might not might not be true, and I think having Betsy, being married to Lauren, um, having a lot of friends um, has really helped with that whole fame thing. And my jealousy has been awful at, when I first started the podcast uh, almost six years ago. I mean, I wanted all my guests to admit they were jealous because I was jealous of everybody when I had started out. Here in Chicago, had gone on to New York and Los Angeles and had become big and famous. Um, and again, uh, that in the time that I've done this podcast, that seems to have gone away. And I, I think part of it, it's not going away completely, and I don't think it'll ever go away completely, but it's not as bad as it, it, it used to be. I mean, it was crippling. When I hear somebody that I started out with um, get, uh, you know, a TV show or get a, a big movie or whatever it was, I would just turn it in on, on myself and go, what am I doing wrong? I'm a piece of shit. You know, all of that crazy stuff. And really, you know, it was really also like anger and bitterness. And uh, like, you know, I think through therapy and, and have friends and, and having good friends and, and having a family, it's less. But but I'm not kidding myself that, that it does. It, it does show up every once in a while, and the, the, the progress is it doesn't last as long. Okay, so that's recovery there. You know, there's a term I like to call fictional finalism, and it goes, I'll be happy when I get my driver's license, when I graduate from college. I think it's a human condition when I retire, instead of being in the now and being in the moment. And that's one of the joys we have in improv, I think, being here right now. 
Yeah, and I think the cool thing about improvisation is it's, I, I, it's, it's a democracy in a way in terms of the audience is the audience votes and the audience votes with, you know, laughter and the audience votes with applause and the la- laughter votes, you know, with groans, which, you know, uh, studying with Del Clothe, he used to always say, you know, uh, you know uh, 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 a, laugh, a groan is as good as a laugh, you know? So whatever reaction we can get from the audience, they're telling us that we are being in the moment and that we're experiencing the now. And you cannot cheat that. And, you know, getting back to control, you know, controlling play, the, the blog that I wrote, you know, I, I, I really believe that, um, that, you know, that, that's the fun thing about improvisation. When you're controlling on stage, you're telling people what to do, um, the audience knows it. They might not know it on a, a conscious level, but they know it. And uh, so they're not laughing. They're not applauding. And so that's what, that's, that's, that is the gift about doing improvisation. The audience tells you, and your other players do as well, tell you when you really are, are working moment to moment. So for people who may not know you, of course, you're, you're famous to me, Jimmy. And, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> and um, I, I wondered a little bit about talking about your history with improv, how old you were when you started, what kind of got you into it. And I know you've mentioned Martin DeMatt. We'll talk about him as well because he's not as well-known of a name as people say like Dell or Viola Spolin. So if you could maybe just give us a little history of your time in improv, which could be volumes, I know. but Sure. So I was uh, 18 years old, uh, and I was, uh, I was 300 and a half pounds. Uh, I, I had I I suffered from many addictions and food was one of them. And I didn't and I graduated from high school and I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I had gone and seen Second City when I was in high school, and I was always uh, the funny kid in my family and in school. And I had gone and seen Second City, and that was always in the back of my head. So when I graduated from high school, this is back in 1982, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I took about a year and a half off uh, as all my friends were going to college, and I started in the Players' Workshop of the Second City. And at that time, that there was very few places that taught improv, and that was the place that if you called down a Second City at North and Wells, uh, they had a po- they had a flyer on the on the on the wall as you walked up the stairs there, and they would recommend you to Players' Workshop in the Second City. And that was very uh, Viola Spolin based, a lot of games, and uh, that was my first introduction of uh, improv. And from there, I went to uh, the Second City. Now, this was before I think it was a form. I think it was called the Training Center, but it was a, before it was uh, considered the Conservatory. And really, that was uh, I had people like Don DePaulo and Jeff Michelski, John Michelski, as I remember. Uh, and people that had had were, had performed on the stages, and that was geared more towards um, putting up the Second City style review. Uh, and so after that, in that class, uh, there uh, Tim Meadows was in my graduating class at Second City, Madam Wong, and Alan Lee, and they had all studied at the Improv Olympic simultaneously. And I always, when I saw them perform, I'm like, these guys have stage presence, and they're playing on a on a totally different level. And actually, uh, before I even signed up for the Improv Olympics, 
Then it was called the Improv Olympic. Now it's called I.O. Chicago. Tim Meadows took me one Saturday, and they were short a player. So the first Herald I ever did, I had no training whatsoever. And I will never forget the scene. Tim and I, I played a, uh, Tim played a cab driver, and I played a clown called Crib Death the Clown. And that was the first time uh, I had ever, ever done Herald. And then after that, I signed up, and I started to uh, study with Del Close. And Del was... Um, Dell was very intimidating. I was scared to death of him. He was a big, imposing presence uh, with this deep voice. Um, and he really told, you know, taught me the truth in comedy, which was, um, you know, you, uh, especially with monologues. And in those days, we would uh, open Harold with doing a, an honest monologue. And Dell really believed you could go and just tell a story from your life and you could get laughs. You didn't need to embellish it or anything like that. And that was really helpful because uh, a couple of years later then, when I got to the annoyance, I did a show called I'm 27, I Still Live at Home Until Office Applies. And that was really uh, based on a lot of the things that I had learned from Dell uh, in terms of telling honest monologues. He also uh, introduced, you know, slowing your scene work down, this whole concept of slow comedy. Uh, and, it, and, and I was very grateful he, he really inspired uh, people, uh, and, and, and really, at that time, this is back in the a, a, late 80s, improv was, 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 if you told people you were doing improv in Chicago, in Chicago you'd say improv, people would say, oh, what are you doing, stand-up? They didn't get it. And, and he really made us believe that this is an art form, and that really was something that has stuck with me to this day. Now, I was lucky because also I was studying with probably the best hands-on teacher that I've ever worked with in improvisation, and that's Martin DeMott. And Martin was a direct disciple of Spolin. He was around Second City when uh, uh, Paul Sills was there, I believe. I, I don't know what uh, if he had any exposure to Viola Spolin. He probably did. His Aunt was Josephine Forsberg, who started the Players Workshop. So he was a little, he was a, a kid when he was around Second City. And so he absorbed all this stuff. And what a great teacher. I have never seen somebody um, get great work out of everybody in the class. And the thing is that I hope that I've taken from, I, I've taken a lot from Martin, but he made improvisation so easy. It, it was, it was, it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was so much fun to be in his class because you were going to have fun and he was going to make it easy. And I, I don't know how he did it. He did it with a lot of the Spolin games. And there's one thing that I've taken from him. There's many, but the one that that's been helpful in, in, in my teaching is making. So you do warm up games, which I think a lot of people give short shifts. They're like, ah, warm up games. Let's go right to the team. Martin's philosophy was, have people play these warm-up games, and when they're starting to laugh, that's when you know you can move them into doing more complicated uh, scene work kind of stuff. And that, 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 that I've held on to for a long time. And from there, I went on to the Annoyance Theater, and like I said, I did many shows there. Uh, and the one, uh, we, we did script, we improvised, and did, um, uh, we did plays and musicals. We improvised them and then scripted them out. And that's where I, I got to do I'm 27, I still live at home, so off of the plot. 
And that was nine years after I had started, and that, that show was, was really great. And at that time, I was also doing a, a long-form show called Judge Freddy. And then, you know, I, I bounced back to the Improv Olympic and was in the original cast of Armando and, you know, started to teach more. And that's pretty much, you know, uh, you know, I've been in, in doing shows and teaching not only in Chicago, but across the country uh, since then. <clears throat> Do you remember the first time you performed on stage? The first time that I performed on stage um, was I probably in 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 our house. Um, well, I think. Oh my God, this is interesting. So the first time I think I I remember being as a really small kid. My mom had me, and I think uh, my brother. We did like a, a, you know, like a. We were like two or three, maybe three or four years old, and we were like did a kids' fashion show. I don't know why that popped into my mind, but I, I remember wearing this like onesie shorts thing with stripes. I, I, it, I, that was like the first time I. And then it wasn't until I was probably I'm going to say fifth or sixth grade. It was summer, and. Uh, in those days, like, you know, your parents didn't send you away to, or my parents didn't send me away to summer camp. And I remember organizing some of the kids in the, in the neighborhood. And we did like a, like a, a little like variety show for my parents and their parents. And that was at our house. And I remember like, um, I think there was shame certainly uh, of doing it, but there was also like excitement, like, this is this you know this is this is this is a lot of fun. So you did play as a child, and even when the most I, even with the most dysfunctional families, when when I yes. I do a lot of work with people from dysfunctional families, and I know there's some people out there that said they had great childhoods. They're weird to me, but um, everybody has play experiences, and so you had some really positive play experiences as a kid, didn't you? Yes, I did. You know, it's funny because, um, you know, my, my parents were very ne neglectful. So we did have opportunities to, 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 you know, play with other kids. I know we, I think we, there was a TV show called SWAT, and uh, we would, there was a theme song, do, 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 and we would play SWAT in the backyard. Um, so we did... There, there was opportunities to play and um, growing up. Yeah, certainly. So getting back to first performances, how about your first improv performance and how were, how were you doing in the beginning? So I think that my first, well, I was awful. I mean, I was awful for a long, long time. My first um, performance was the Players Workshop, the fifth level, which was, you would put on a Second City style review, um, and 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 you got to do the show at ten in the morning on the main stage of Second City. And I remember, uh, first of all, what would happen is I would be really good in class, and then when the, the you know the weeks before when they were putting the shows together, the show together, I would be like, oh, they got to come and ask me, you know, which was really when I look back at it, I was just afraid. And so we did that show, and um, I was—I I did a couple scenes, 
And I wasn't very good. I, I really wasn't that good. Um, I was very good in class, but when it came to like something where there, the stakes were high, this is the beginning of my self sabotage. The stakes were high. I was I was really cold and going high. Um, so I wasn't good. And the other thing that really crippled me in in improv, I would say for the first ten years was. I was doing a Bob Newhart impersonation. I, I was playing the deadpan guy, you know, you know, reacting, you know, kind of sarcastic, and that really limited my 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 play. I had success with it. I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna kid you, but it really wasn't fun. And and I, I know people start and they use other people's voices, you know, other comics' voices, um, but but. This was really a detriment to, to, to my growth. So despite the fact that you weren't having fun, you were self-sabotaging, you were self-critical, what kept you going? Well, I think I really wanted to do comedy as a career. Uh, was, you know, and, and so that was, you know, that, it was that drive. I wanted to get on, on, I wanted to be hired by Second City. That was a huge goal, um, especially because I grew up here in Chicago and Second City meant so much. And, you know, all the, the, the alumni that had come out of Second City. I also think it was the community that kept me in there. And, and I think really in a lot of respects, if I could go back and do it again, uh, I probably wouldn't have uh, put so much effort in being the best improviser out there um, because I think that cut me off from a lot of other opportunities. But it was the community because I had come from this household and I'd grown up in this, um, in this um, uh, suburb where, you know, it, you know, it was very repressed and it was very buttoned down. And, you know, like I said, I came from a dysfunctional family. And when I found these people, these, you know, th these were my people. And I've heard people, as I've interviewed people on the podcast, Improv Nerd, say the same thing. And for me, it was really acceptance, you know. Um, it was just so great. All the things that I had been punished for or scolded, you know, being the class clown or, you know, saying something funny or, you know, performing in my family where I was being punished, where I was being squashed. I was now being rewarded in improv and being supported by these other people. I totally get that. I was always thought of as weird or different. You know, there was something weird or different about me. And I had a feeling I didn't fit in from an early age. And, um... I suffer from many addictions as well. So I think that I, when I started doing improv and really meeting some wonderful teachers and mentors, I really felt like I fit in. It was really comfortable. Um, when, was Second City the first place you taught at? Uh, no, actually, the first place I taught at was at the Annoying. And I was uh, in, I was think, 27 or 28. So you've been doing it a few years, and then you started teaching. And how did teaching feel to you compared to performing? Well, it's interesting. Um, when, we, when, when I started out in the 80s, the path was very narrow, meaning 
everyone's goal was to get hired, or the people that I hung around with, was, it was to get hired on, on the main stage of Second City and then Saturday Night Live. That was it. And if you said to anybody that, oh, you know what, I want to uh, teach or I want to direct or I want to produce, people would be like, what are you, giving up on your dream? And so I think for the first probably 10, 15 years, um, I, I struggled with that. You know, it's like, oh, you know, those who can't teach, um, I'm really giving up on my dream. And I think even at the beginning when I uh, and, and, and teach, you know, uh, teaching, I was like, well, you know what, uh, I'm getting paid for this. You know, as you know, there's, there's, there's very little opportunity. There's more. Certainly, but at that time, there was very little opportunity to make money as an improviser. So I was like, well, at least, you know, I'm making money as a teacher. And so that, that you know, I, I, um, I could justify that. It's funny today, and I would say this is true probably for the last three or four years, I enjoy teaching far more than I enjoy uh, performing improv. Hmm. Well, I uh, have absolutely had the pleasure and joy of taking at least two or actually three workshops with you. I did your intensive last summer in Chicago, and it was a mind blower. And uh, then down here in Naples, we did a short one, and I even did a little duo class with you. You're an incredible teacher. And um, can you talk a little bit about your workshops that are coming up this summer? Yes, um... Thank you. I've got um, two in July and one in August here in Chicago, and they're going to be at Stage 773. And they are called the Artist Low Comedy Weekend Summer Intensives. And uh, really, uh, I, I get people from all over the world, uh, because a lot of people are in town uh, to take intensives at I.O. Or, or Second City. And since mine are on the weekend, they, they come and they study with me. And in the summer, it's like, you know, I get a group from Poland and Russia and Italy and mixed in with uh, people from the States and Canada. And what uh, my philosophy, you know, or, you know, the method that I've developed through, you know, years of doing it and other teachers that I've been blessed to work with is getting people to slow down. Um, and so by slowing down and not worrying about being funny, and trusting that the funny will come to them, uh, I see some really incredible scene work, real memorable uh, scene work. Um, I really think, you know, um, the whole idea of slowing stuff down. I, I'm a fast eater when it comes to going to a movie. I want to get the movie over with. Anything good, I just, I want to get it over with. Sex, the same thing. Let's just get it over with. <laughs> and what, so what I, what I've, I'm learning myself in improvisation. When you get people to slow down and take the pressure off them, you start to experience emotion. Um, and, uh, you know, joy will come up, certainly. A fear will come up. Shame will come up. Um, anger will come up. And all of these emotions, if we tap into them uh, and we're not afraid of them, uh, we can use them to, to inspire our scene work and to tap into our life experience. And that's, to me, what makes improv so, such a transparent art form. It's so personal. And I think a lot of people get in their own way because they think they're not enough, especially 
now more than ever, when I teach these workshops, I'll get uh, people that have come to improv later in life. And what's interesting to see about them is they're paired up with people that are in their 20s. And they're running fast, meaning, you know, you know, let's do a bit, let's do a tag out, you know. And they feel like, oh, I've got to compete with that. And, and they have far more life experience than the 24-year-old who's just come out of a, you know, Big Ten college. So if you slow things down and you start tapping into your life experience, that gives you your point of view. That starts to help you develop your voice in the improvisation. And you use the term honest comedy. Yes. I think if you slow it down, if you slow things down, you're going to start to feel. And I think feelings are probably, feelings and 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 how your body moves are the most honest you're going to be on uh, in life and the most honest you're going to be on stage. What happens is, we think we need to play a certain way, but we put ex- expectations on ourselves, and we, we, we think improv is about being funny. And I really believe before you can be funny, you need to be real. And so that gets back to the honesty. If you strip all that stuff away, you're going to be you're you're going to be you're going to be a little vulnerable. You're going to you're going to you're going to you're going to be a little bare. And that's that that is your vein of gold. I had a teacher here in Chicago wonderful teacher, Kathy Scampateria. I hope I got her name right. She's at the Artistic Home. And she taught a Meisner class. And she used to say, your pain to all the actors in the class, your pain is your goal. And uh, I really believe that. Let's let's share a little of our joy, but let's also share some of our pain. Um, and if we can tap into that, we're going to see, we're going to connect with our partners on, on such a deeper level. And our scene work will not only be funnier, it'll be deeper and more memorable. Well, the exercise, the vulnerability circle, is like a highlight for me each time I've worked with you. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you developed that, and how it's evolved over the years? Because that's really getting to sure. some feelings and to, to honesty and authentic, authenticity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, many years back, I was um, uh, very fortunate to work with uh, another great improv teacher called Liz Allen, and we did a thing called the Individual Assessment Program. And she introduced this game to me, um, the Vulnerable Circle. And uh, we uh, it, it basically, if people aren't aware of this, um, uh, we, you, everybody's in a circle, and you put one person in the middle, and then... Um, they face uh, one of the people in the middle, and they're going to go. They're going to go. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to say, you know, your favorite color, and then I'll go next, and I'll say uh, your the best uh, memory you ever have next. Your favorite TV show next, and we'll work that up to um, uh, tell me one thing you don't want to know about. One thing you don't want to know about you. One, did I get that right? Tell me one thing you don't want us to know about you. That's it. And then they will reveal three things that they don't want anyone to know about them. Now, when Liz and I did it, it was very quick. And uh, we basically uh, would, you know, say, say a couple things, as I remember, and get to the part where they admit one thing they don't want us to know about them. And I've, uh, mine seems to go a little longer uh, as I've done it. And then um, as, as 
so the game is gone is evolved in terms of then at the end I have everybody hugging the giant circle, and if they want to affirm somebody uh, about something they said, or if they want to they want to reveal something that they might have not had an opportunity to reveal, they have an opportunity to do that. And I found that that's been very powerful to start the workshops in so many different ways. And as you said, it, it taps people into being more authentic and being vulnerable. And that really opens them up for the, um, for the rest of the workshop. And a lot of times it's funny because the reaction I'll get is, oh, my God, that's like therapy. Oh, I can't believe you asked me to do this. And then the one I love, the one that I just love is people will say, they'll say to me, uh, uh, oh, um, you, you made, uh, you made, uh, you made so-and-so cry, or we took your workshop and I heard somebody cried or something like that. And I, I wish I was that powerful. Uh, usually what they're speaking about is somebody in that game, uh, will, uh, reveal something or be triggered by somebody else who reveal something. And then, uh, tap into their sadness and begin to cry. It's an incredible way to connect with other people, which is important if you're going to be a team and be able to respect each other as well. And I felt like everybody respected each other in the workshops I was in. It was just a beautiful experience. And I also noticed that when it started, sometimes people would be kind of safe with what they shared. They didn't want people to know. But then someone would say something pretty dramatic. And then it seemed to follow after that that people opened up more once one person took that risk. I don't know. Yes. And the other, yeah. And the other thing I think that's really important about that game, you know, as a teacher, you know, you're always thinking, okay, can I find that student? This is how I control things, but can I find that student that's going to reveal stuff right from the beginning to set those dominoes in motion? Um, That happens. Uh, less than, than, you know, I, I certainly would like. And I think the, 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 the part two where people do get in touch with the sadness and start to, to break down is really important as well. Sometimes it's not even, you know, you'll, you'll see people there that will be, you know, they'll be starting to tear up and cry and stuff like that. And they're not even the person in the middle. And, what I, what I find so fascinating about, you know, tears or any sort of emotion, but tears seem to be the most palpable one, sadness, is they're really expressing the, the sadness that the group, and including the teacher, can't get in touch with. And if we have access to all of our emotions, um, that's just going to give us more colors on the palette to play with when we start to do our scene work. So switching topic a bit, I've heard different teachers talk about, you know, start with an emotion or start with an action. What do you think about those um, ideas? I think, I think all of those ideas are really good. You know, I think um, it, uh, starting with an emotion uh, helps people, you know, like get out of their head. Like if you can give somebody like, oh, they're, they're happy. So anything anybody says to them in that scene they're going to be happy and they're going to, you know, the worst news, they're, they're going to be happy. That, that gives them an instant point of view. Um, and it gets them out of their head. Um, starting with an action. Um, it's another way to get you out of 
out of you know, you know if you're starting with um, when they mean action, what do they mean? Like object like work, environment, object work. or yeah, environment, okay. or object work, um, yeah. Yeah, so that helps you. Uh, you know, if you're making uh, a cake at the beginning of the scene, that will that you're putting focus on the object work, and you're you're not worrying so much about um, uh, what you're going to say. Now, that being said, if that doesn't work for you, like I, then then you know, I'm a real believer in uh, take what you want and leave the rest. So if that doesn't work for you. Uh, you know, don't make it a hard and fast rule. It just doesn't work for you. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that certainly got in my way. Was all I, I, I was initially trained with rules, and it wasn't only until I discovered McNapier's book that I just found out that you don't have to have all those rules, but it's a good way to learn, I guess. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that the improviser's journey is to find out what works for them. So that's why I'm like a big... Uh, I encourage people like to study with as many people as possible because what you're doing is you're getting their experience. If you study with McNabry, you're getting his experience and what worked for him on stage. If you study with Susan Matthew and Rachel Nathan, you're getting their experience and what works for them on stage. And if you, and I believe like you're, you're, you're collecting from all of these people, you know, the tools that they have that work for you. Now, everything that Susan does, might not apply to you, but maybe six out of the ten things do. Keep those six six things, and then go work with Rachel and keep you know her six things, and go work with Nick and keep his six things, and go work with me and keep keep my six things. And so you're you're building. It, it's a very personal art form, you know. And so I, I that that's what I think. And I think where people get in the way is like, oh, you know. Um, you know, it's one size fits all. This is going to apply to all of us. I do think there are some that, you know, agreement seems to work for, for most people. And uh, But, you know, there, there's different degrees of it, and people play different games with it. So I, just, I think, you know, find the stuff that works for the specific person. You know, we're all individuals. We all have different life experiences. We all have different, you know, sensibilities in comedy. So use use what you what works for you and throw out the rest. Exactly. You know, I know we share a common interest about Im- teaching improv to therapists, and you had a workshop that unfortunately I couldn't attend. Can you talk about that a little bit? How it went? And yeah, yeah, um, it went really well. Um, you know, I I just love therapy. I, I've been in therapy for ten years. No, I think it's over. I think it's like eleven or twelve now. Um, like Woody Allen, you're, you're like the Woody Allen of therapy, yeah. Yes, yes, and I'm, and I've been going. I go to group therapy uh, uh, twice a week, and and it's really helped me with my teaching tremendously because I'll bring in stuff that I I've, I've been triggered by students, and then get to process that, and then go back and if I have to make an amends to the class or. This is how I'm going to deal with it next time. So it's made me a much better teacher. Um, so I was really excited to work with therapists because I've got a lot out of therapy. And, uh, you know, what I really was, you know, hope that they got from this was um, something that I think all professionals, but really therapists can use uh, is letting go of your agenda, following your client. Where does your client want to go? 
Uh, I, I, I experience therapists being in their head a lot of the times um, uh, and not uh, necessarily in touch with their emotions as much as I, I would think. So, uh, you know, I, I think what this workshop, and you'd have to ask them, but what I was trying to, to um, convey to them is, you know what? Drop your agenda. Go Stay in the moment with your client because I know for me, being in therapy, when I go into therapy and I don't have an agenda, when I go into a classroom and I don't have an agenda, I'm that I'm much more effective uh, of getting help for my therapist, and I'm a much more effective teacher when I follow my students. That doesn't mean I'm giving my power away. That means I'm meeting them where they're at. So um, if a therapist, the therapist got that from that workshop, I would be ecstatic. Well. Um... Yeah, I, I would love to take it sometime, and, and uh, right now I'm kind of working on recovery, addiction, 12-step, and improv, and um, maybe the next time we talk, because I hope you'll let me interview you again, Jimmy, we could talk about those concepts. So my last question is, improv has grown so much since you started out. Where do you see this art form going today? Well, it's so funny because um, I get this question a lot, and um, uh, I, and maybe more because I'm identifying more as a teacher. I see it where where it's really, uh, and I think it's probably going to be the next couple years. Is I see the teaching really uh, of improvisation expanding even beyond uh, what what we're seeing it now. When I was in in, in the probably it was the late '80s. Uh, they were people were doing corporate team building, creative workshops for corporations. Not many people were doing that. And when you get that gig, uh, a, a lot of people would, would turn them down because they felt they were uh, they were selling out. You know, this isn't what improv is about. We're not going to corporate America to teach them to come up with better ideas um, or to team build. We're not going to do that. And then I, I, I saw that. Uh, I saw then that whole boom happen with people teaching in corporate America, and that's become like its own industry. And then uh, now, uh, and I know you do work in this, uh, we're, we're starting to see it with uh, therapy uh, and mental health, dealing with anxiety, dealing with kids, you know, uh, social um, anxiety. Uh, we're, uh, I know... Um, They've done kids with uh, who are on the spectrum. Uh, they're using they're using improv for that. I know someone here in um, Chicago who's doing it um, to work with the elderly. Um, I've I've read articles about people that are using it to work with Alzheimer's patients. So the use of the training really, to me, is the thing that pe- people aren't talking about. Because people want to talk about the next form, or where, how are we going to put it on TV. But really, where, where I see it, it, it's a lot of growth and where improv, in terms of te- is in the teaching. Because I don't think we're even, they've even scratched the surface of it. Well, uh, you've certainly inspired me, Mr. Jimmy Corain, and you certainly are enough. And um, I just love you, and um, I want to thank you so much for the time today. And uh, do you have any words of wisdom for the beginning improviser out there? Yeah, it's something, you know, I always end at the, you know, the podcast, I always ask 
people, you know, what, what is, what's one piece of advice you'd give to an improviser starting out today? And I think if I could go back to, um, to me when I was starting out, I would say this, um, get help. You know, if you've got, you know, uh, if you have an addiction, get into, you know, find a recovery program that, you know, uh, if you are struggling with, I'm not good enough stuff, get into therapy, uh, get friends that are supportive in and outside of improv. Because one thing that I did, um, well, there was a couple things, but one thing that I did that I, I, I really regret was I put so much expectation. Because when I found improv, like I said, I was like, oh, I found my people. I'm home. Well, improv and the concepts of improv and the community of improv, they weren't mental health professionals. I needed mental health professionals. And so I, and I didn't come from a supportive family at all. So I needed that support. And I think I was looking for my players or I was looking for validation, uh, in improv and, and, and in, you know, it's, you know, we fall in love with it. There's no question. And it casts a spell on us, but it can't solve all our, our, all our life's problems. So if you're struggling with something, get help, you know, and, uh, that's, uh, yeah, I can't tell you how many opportunities that I, um, and, and I talked about it on the podcast and I talked about it on, in the blog. I had so many opportunities, Margo. I, 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 I blew off an audition for Saturday Night Live. I had a writing opportunities, a writing job, I, you know, paying gigs that I turned down because I didn't have that support, because I didn't have those people who say, hey, you know, somebody's offering me some money to do an improv show, and uh, what do you think I should do? Or, you know, I got an audition to Saturday Night Live. I'm terrified. I don't want to go. Um, what do you think I should do? Um, I didn't have that. And uh, I-, I wonder how my life would be different had I had that support, uh, that support network early in my career. Yeah. Those are wonderful thoughts, and I want to remind our listeners that you have you just did your 233rd podcast and blog recently, and there'll be links online where you can find out how to get in touch with Jimmy and hopefully sign up for his summer intensive because it's an experience you wouldn't want to miss. Well, Jimmy, I love yeah. you, and I thank you again, and uh, we'll be talking real soon, I hope. Thank you, Margot.